You know, it's been a challenging week uh, prepping for preaching, and uh, part of that is because there's been so much to process, so much to learn and think about, pray about, that I've just been finding it really difficult. And so I just want to let you know kind of where I'm at at the start of things. Wednesday night we had an elders meeting, and, and we agreed, let's press forward. In fact, providentially, God's Word is so profound, profoundly relevant Months and months ago, I put together this passage on this Sunday, and I saw this early Monday morning, but uh, the, the text speaks into the times. And this happens over and over again. We're going to see it again this morning. This morning is a big picture kind of passage. It pulls out of this sort of week-to-week narrative of, of what Jesus is up to and it, it's, it's almost like the father gently lifts the chin of his children and says, hey, look up here. Gaze into my loving face. I'm the author who is writing the story, and, and this isn't the last chapter. We're still in this. And, and that's, a, that's a sense of what I had personally as I experienced this. Isaac Watts wrote this hymn years ago. And it's so relevant. In fact, this is the way the Spirit works. Ben didn't know I was going to say this. I didn't know exactly what Ben was going to say at the start. But Come and Listen is a song that is calling you to do exactly what I'm about to call you to do. Ready? Here's the line. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Our hope for the future, is related to the help that we have found in the past. Christian, you forget your past, and your future looks pretty bleak, pretty hopeless. Right now, I want to re-encourage you. Maureen, I saw your post. Uh, Donna, I saw your post. Patty Lucia, I saw your post. Um, Of all these things, what is God doing? What has God done to sustain us. You've always wanted to text and talk in church. Talk about this. One of the beauties of this mode of church is we can all talk at the same time and we can all kind of hear and filter and process it at the same time. So right now is testimony time. Get out your thumbs, get out your fingers, speak text if that's your thing. What has God done? Let's remember church. Let's encourage one another with telling, like we sang in that opening song, come and listen to what God has done. It's directly related to our future. This passage, turn in Luke chapter 18, verse 31 to 34, just four verses this morning. That's where we're going to be, but I want you to listen as Jesus points to his past. Remember for Jesus, his Bible, his holy written scripture is the Old Testament. That's his Bible. So he's going to point to to his past and all that was written about him and say that that all points to him. And then he's going to recount his future as if it already happened. He's going to point to the past and declare his future. And these future events give hope for everyone's future. All right, so listen, Luke 18, verse 31, follow along with me. And taking the twelve, that's his twelve disciples, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. 
and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So as we just read this morning, my text for this sermon is everything written about Jesus by the prophets. Okay, so settle in. In fact, go ahead and just turn to page one. We'll just turn to page one of our textbook, Genesis 1.1. We'll start there, and we're just going to make our way through. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You might need a snack for this morning. Everything written about Jesus by the prophets is what he's calling into view. Do you see what I'm saying with this being a high-level, big-picture, lift-your-chin-to-God-see-what-the-big-story-is kind of passage? Just to show you how relevant the Scriptures are day by day. This text speaks to this week in what I'm going through, in what our country and church is going through. This morning, in a reading plan that I had committed to reading January 1st of 2020, Matthew 21 is in my reading plan. Do you know what I read this morning? I read a chapter. You can go look it up. I read a chapter where three different times Jesus quotes an Old Testament prophet and interprets it about himself. Now, what's the message I'm going to come preach on? It's that Jesus said that all of the Old Testament points to him. And now in Matthew 21, go look it up. He's giving a few different specific places where he says, here's what the prophets wrote. He quotes them, and then he applies it to himself. He interprets it for himself. The scriptures are an ever-present source of comfort, instruction, rebuke. So this is a big picture passage. Before Easter... And after Christmas are a few tiny years. They're a blink. They're a whisper in the grand timeline of things. But all the things happened in those 30 plus years that went on. Jesus does what no man has done before or since. He predicts his own death and resurrection. He predicts his own death and resurrection. Now it's pretty easy to do the first But it's miraculous if you can pull off the first and the second complete with an accurate timeline of when that resurrection will happen. Never been done before. It is supernatural. This is now either the third or the seventh time in Luke alone where Jesus is predicting his own death and resurrection, kind of depending on how you count it up. Let me go back a couple of weeks um, to to a message that, that was preached Um, uh, in in the opening part of, of Luke 18. And we were instructed in the Scriptures to pray what you live and live what you pray. The parable Jesus was teaching was about a widow who was knocking on the door of the judge saying, give me justice, demanding justice, not letting go of justice. And what does Jesus say about that? This helpless widow that shouldn't have been able to change anything in society, shouldn't have been able to change the judge's mind. Jesus says, be like that with God. If a wicked judge would change for that persistence, how much more a good and gracious gracious God? So he says, never give up, never lose heart, always pray. 
What a powerful passage for us. And then last week, Gria um, held up the, uh, the, the massive question, the what could be more important question than understanding eternal salvation. What is it? How do we get it? Those are some really big questions. And of course, it was framed around the conversation Jesus had with the rich young ruler. Isn't it powerful to see that Jesus is good and in his goodness, it leaves the man sad? Church, this is so instructive. As Christians, we must share the beautiful gift of Jesus, and we will often, in that goodness, in that heart of love, leave people sad. Parents who honor God in their parenting know this well. To love your kids well means we will regularly disappoint them and leave them sad and It will mean that we are being loving and good to them at the same time. Get used to that. Get comfortable with that. Jesus engages this rich young man with some really good probing questions. Why do you call me good? He doesn't linger on this, but he's just asking, what's behind that? Why do you use this tactic of flattery? Have you ever thought about why you're asking that question? It draws us in because that's how he draws us in. And then like a surgeon, Jesus, the good doctor, skillfully cuts right to the core of the sickness. He bypasses lesser sicknesses, right? The man says, all these things I've kept my whole life. I've kept the whole law my whole life. Jesus doesn't go after that. Doesn't go after the fact that this guy thinks God would be lucky to have him on his team. Instead, what he does is he knew that he didn't have to prove a point. Here's why. Love isn't concerned with proving points. Love isn't concerned with proving points. Love is only concerned with proving genuine. One thing you lack. With those words, the good doctor, in the short term, seeks to injure the young man, which would, be, which would lead to his eternal healing, his eternal wholeness. And what happens is this. This is the path to life, friends. Death before resurrection. It's such a hard message. In fact, most people will and are rejecting that. Many will encounter the true Jesus and be disciples not of Jesus, but of the rich young ruler. They will leave disappointed and sad that Jesus didn't give them the answer that they wanted. Hold on to these things. Remember this as a Christian when it feels like everyone is rejecting and you're tempted to think, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe you are doing something wrong, but maybe you're being just like God. Maybe you're being just like a loving parent and you're being good and disappointing people at the same time. So on the heels of looking out for others, And teaching out there, he's now going to draw in and talk to his intimate crew, his beloved disciples. And that's where this passage takes us. He gives them the utterly clear truth that world history turns on, and yet we'll see they don't really handle this all that well. In fact, they don't handle it well now, not yet. They get there. I want to show you how Jesus is both a teacher and a trainer. To the crowds, he was a teacher. To his intimate crew, he was more of a trainer. What's the difference? Teaching versus training. J. Warner Wallace is an apologist, and he was a longtime detective, and he says that Christians ought to think like detectives. 
And he says the difference between teaching and training is this, a calendar date. Think about a heavyweight boxer and a big fight coming up. He's in training because there's a calendar date. Think about a high school student three months before heading off to university. Maybe as a parent, maybe as a youth pastor, maybe as a friend. You no longer are interested in just teaching them, thinking you have all the time in the world. You want them to go into strict training because there's a deadline coming. So teaching and training includes a date. Jesus knew he was leaving soon and that he'd come back someday and that his crew needed some desperate help. They needed some training right now. So Jesus taught the crowds, but now pulls his disciples aside and begins to train them. And verse 31 says this, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. The deadline Jesus sets is a place, not a date. Jerusalem is where he's going to die. He knows that. So he's pointing toward Jerusalem, and that is the end date. But it's not a date on the calendar, it's a place. Jesus wants to make it crystal clear in the minds of the disciples ahead of time what is about to happen is a part of God's story. Jesus is here on a mission, and things are about to get really, really dark. He's saying, don't think it's all just unraveling. I'm in control of this. I'm a part of this. I am a willing participant on what God is doing in the world. I sort of envision Jesus like a quarterback, and he's got his huddle, and he says, okay, boys, got it? And he looks around at the faces in that huddle, and I wonder what's going through his mind as the leader in that situation. I wonder if he wondered if Operation Church Launch was, was in jeopardy. You know, this last week or so, we, we had the idea that a cloudy day can, can ground a space mission, right? A rocket launch. How about cloudy thinking from the young men that this mission depends on. I hope this morning, and I hope regularly in my time in this platform that I have, both to teach and to train Christians and non-Christians alike. One aspect of discipleship is grounding you in why you believe what you do, not just what we believe as Christians, what is taught as Christians. I hope you've been confronted with this question before, because if you've been confronted with this question before, A, it means you've probably asked it of yourself, B, it means you're opening your mouth in defense of Jesus Christ, and people will ask this kind of question if you do that. Is Jesus God? People will ask you, isn't it true that he didn't even claim to be God, that that's something that people um, later on came and, and retroactively placed on him? Jesus never even claimed to be God. Is Jesus really God? He didn't think he was God. I hope you've been confronted and confronted those questions. Because it would be important to know, would it not, if you're believing a lie? It would be important to know if you're devoting your life to a fraud. That would seem of utmost importance to me. If someone were to ask you, why are you a Christian? I want you to think about, what's your gut level first response? Why are you a Christian? What comes to mind with that? Here's some things that often people will say. I'm a Christian because I was raised in a Christian home. Maybe someone says, I'm a Christian because I had this experience. 
And I was utterly convinced that 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 was the way to go. Maybe someone says, I'm a Christian because I am being transformed. My life is different. And that's my testimony. I think those are all great reasons. In fact, a lot of those apply directly to me. That's a part of why I'm a Christian. But here's what I would put out to you. If you were to ask a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Mormon, why are you one of those? Why are you subscribing to your belief system? Could they not answer exactly the same way? Let me put out to you something that I think is a far more important and a far more lasting criteria of why I believe today, if you are not, you should become a Christian. Ready? The question you should ask is this, is it true? Is it true? Who cares if I was raised in a home that taught things if it's not true, right? Who cares if I've had an experience? I've had tons of experiences that when I looked back on, I go, huh, I wasn't thinking clearly. Anyone ever break up out there in TV land? Yeah, we've all had experiences. How about being transformed? Man, people are being transformed right now because they're on a keto diet. And guess what? That may go away one day. Far more lasting, far more important, far more vital is this question. Is it true? The Christian faith does not hinge on how it makes you feel, on what it promises, on how well it works, or any of those things. The Christian faith hinges on whether or not it is true. And the starting point, the linchpin, the center and foundation of it all is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. This is in our own holy book. Look at this verse. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central starting claim. If it fails, the whole thing fails. Last week, I was talking with Phil Nemec. Phil has been a giant in producing what we do here, um, turning our worship room into a studio so we can broadcast to, to people far and wide. And as we were talking at the end of service last week, uh, we were discussing one of the things that's a key value for here because all members of God's body um, are required for us to be completely effective. So at every position, we always talk about bench strength. That is, other people who can come in and replace. That's why no one person is here all the time doing the same role, except for Phil. So Phil's in the process of training some other people. But right now, uh, Phil used this term. He said, I am, and I I just wrote this down because it's so fantastic. Phil said, I am the single point of failure. And I gave him a giant social distance hug, and I said, Phil, you're not a, a single point of failure. I didn't really touch him. Don't panic. Don't report me. I love that phrase. What he means by that is this. If Phil goes away right now, all you guys get to do is hear me with a bullhorn in the front of the church shouting as loud as I can, hoping you can hear me. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a single point of failure. That thing goes away. Everything goes away. It's that important. 
So this passage, this claim of Jesus here, is everything. The claim to be God by Jesus is backed up by many knowable, testable proofs. Do you know who wants to make sure we get this? Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke. Is he in favor of blind faith? No. He's in favor of a reasonable, rational faith. Here's what he says in the opening of this book that we started in months ago. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, this is in Luke 1, if you can't read that small print, I've just put in red what you really need to see. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning, watch this, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered uh, them to us, it seemed good to me also, catch, catch this, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Do you know that Luke wrote a sequel? It's called the book of Acts. It's the launch of the new church. At the very beginning of the book of Acts, Acts 1.1, The first account I composed, that would be Luke that we're going through, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had been led by the Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering and catch these four words, by many convincing proofs. Hear me, church. Dr. Luke is concerned with showing the rational, thorough defense of the gospel. The truth that Jesus is God in a body who came to die in the place of sinners. So that, just as Christ rose from the dead, safe and sound, we as his followers can do the same. You can bring it back to picture in picture now. Jesus is not just teaching his disciples. He is training them for his departure because his departure is soon. You can't handle the truth. Now, I put this title on here uh, because it's, it's, it's from a movie line uh, of, of just one of the all-time great shifting scenes in a movie. Um, For those of you kids who may not know what this is referring to, ask mom or dad or someone older than you to do their best Jack Nicholson Nicholson, saying you can't handle the truth. Uh, This is, of course, from a movie called A Few Good Men. Colonel Jessup is on the witness stand in his marine dress uniform. He's under oath, and he delivers this incredible scene acted out by Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. It's great because it is the linchpin moment of the story. It is a great title because this title of the movie is A Few Good Men. And here's Jesus with his few good men. And it's great because they couldn't handle the truth of what he was saying. As in Jesus. They were not able to handle it. So I want to just talk about two aspects of that. The disciples couldn't handle the size and scope of the truth. Jesus is telling something profoundly outside of their mind. Past experience can give you somewhat of a frame of reference as you try to comprehend something new. 
So Jesus says, just as Jonah was inside of a great fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be. He's already said those, lyrics, those, those words. So they can kind of get a little hazy picture. How about present? Um, your, your, the, the, the present things you're going through might kind of help with that. They had just seen Jesus walk on water, so they know that Jesus is capable from many signs and wonders of doing some pretty incredible things. But nothing really gives them a clear picture. Why? Because this is brand new. God's never done this before. And because this is beyond them. They simply can't grasp it. If you're ever driving by the church, look next door. And in the marquee sign, there's like a relic now in in the marquee sign next door at John Muir Middle School. Here's how it reads. It says, don't forget to wear green on March 17th. Go Falcons. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment if somehow God had given me a vision for what was about to take place. And I walked over to the person, and while they're forming the marquee sign, I sidle up next to them. And what I say is this Hey, hey, guess what? Craziest thing. In a matter of days, the sign that you are creating will be of no consequence whatsoever. You can keep making your sign, but no one will care. And here's why. The county is going to mandate something called a shelter-in-place order. Don't worry. You'll you'll hear that more and more. You'll understand what that means in a few days. In fact, we'll be the first in the country, and then the whole state's going to do it, and then the whole nation's going to adopt this policy of sheltering in place. It's going to be so huge that school and sporting events and funerals and weddings and businesses and governments will all shut down, unlike anything you've ever seen in your entire life. Everything will, be, will, will, will change. Then, a couple of months into this, there is going to be a news event out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, of all places. And the news cycle and everything everyone's going to be talking about is going to overlook a space launch, a presidential election coming up in the fall, and even a worldwide pandemic. And there is going to be protests that will lead to rioting and rampant violence and lawlessness, unlike you, marquee sign maker of John Muir Middle School, have ever seen in your life. Have a nice day. And then I just walk away. Ask your past self this question. What would you make of news like that? Let's say somehow someone came to you with news like that. Would you be in disbelief? Would you demand some sort of proof? Would you just believe wholeheartedly and alter your entire life based on that testimony? What would happen most likely is you would engage your God-given sense of rationale and say, should I believe this or should I not? You would be a fool to blindly believe someone walking up and saying that. It is so beyond your capacity. It is something so new and outside your past and present. You cannot make sense of it until it happens. This is not the first time. In fact, once again, to highlight the timeliness of God's word. In my reading plan, sometime in the last couple of weeks, 2 Kings chapter 7. Here's radical economic overnight change. Go and read the rest of this to learn what this means if these words sound foreign to you. 
But Elisha said, this is 2 Kings 7.1, But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. It was so outlandish what the prophet Elisha was saying that it wasn't taken as real. It must be metaphorical. What Jesus is saying is not the first time something like this has happened. Nothing like this has happened on the same scope. But he is giving them, as we can see looking back on it, exact representation of what's going to happen. He says it really plainly to them, and they miss it. Verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. They don't get it. They couldn't get it. Here's a lesson that I took away for myself. I invite you to take this lesson away. Both the opponents of Jesus, those who hated him, and ultimately wanted to see his physical demise, which they did. So both his opponents and his closest friends, his most intimate, devoted followers, both sides knew some things. And I use the word new kind of in quotes. Both the opponents and disciples knew some things. They knew the definition of Messiah. They knew what kingdom was all about. They knew what salvation and deliverance were all about. They knew who the children of Abraham were and what the Messiah would be like. Both his opponents and disciples, they knew the Scripture's teaching on God's restoration of Israel. They also knew who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. They were convinced they knew how God works and how He would never work. They knew timelines and charts galore. And yet, we can look now and say, they didn't know Jack or Jesus, right? Both his opponents and disciples were equally off base because God was doing something brand new and beyond them. Here's a question for you. Is there a mixture of confidence and humility to what you know about God? Is there a mixture of confidence and humility in what you know about God? Two questions came to my mind that I want to ask and then answer. One, isn't it prideful to say you know anything? Isn't this sort of the stuff we've been spewed for a long time? There are no absolutes, right? Don't you dare impose your morality. That's true for you. I'll tell you what's gone on. People have taken their masks off. There are preachers on every street corner right now evangelizing and bearing witness and calling out what you must believe. And if you don't believe it in the right way, in the right time frame, you get screamed down to educate yourself, or worse, you get beat up, or worse, you get killed. You think there's absolute truth? You think it's ethical to pass on your morality to someone else? Two months ago, preachers like me would say, how dare you try and say that to me? And we are seeing the masks come off. There are preachers of every stripe, on every news channel, on every social media feed, everyone telling everyone else what ought to be done. So is it prideful to say that you know anything at all with certainty? Here's the answer, no. God gives assurance because He loves us. I can say with certainty that my wife loves me, both because of subjective reasons and objective reasons. I love my kids. So I I do due diligence to assure my kids that I love them. God has made some things very, very clear and knowable. I reference you to Gruia's message last week 
about salvation and how to attain it. Question two, are there different kinds of knowing? Yes. Let me give you the idea, if you haven't had it before, that there are both open-handed issues in our Christian faith and there are closed-handed issues in our Christian faith. Close-handed issues of the faith. These are things that usually make it into doctrinal statements. These are the things that it is worth dividing over and saying, this is true, and to step outside of this is to step outside of Orthodox Christianity, is to step outside of what God has clearly given to us. We have certainty on these because God has repeatedly and clearly written them down and expressed them. Things like this, Jesus is both God and man. The Bible is truthful and trustworthy. We are saved by by grace alone through faith and not by works. Those are close-handed issues. And there are open-handed issues of the faith. Open-handed issues of the faith are things that believers disagree over and yet still share the table. They still worship together. These kinds of things might include style of worship, strategy and organization of the church, how to spend the budget, end time details, a host of social issues, and things like alcohol, dancing, R-rated movies. You look through history, it changes, but there are all kinds of open-handed issues. These can and should be discussed. Per my opening comments this morning, these can and should be discussed, debated, pondered, and decided on. Write down Romans 14.5. Romans 14 talks all about disputable matters. The issues were different then, but the principles are the same. Romans 14.5 says this, One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Listen to this. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Each one of you should be fully convinced in your own minds. Here's what that means. Do the hard work of making up your own mind. Then have the courage to actually act on it so you're not a hypocrite. And express the humility not to police your brothers and sisters about that topic. You will give an account for you on Judgment Day. You will give an account for you. And you may be wrong. The Pharisees and the disciples miss the message of Jesus because they knew what they knew didn't have room for the actual truth. They were confused about God's timing. They were confused about Scripture's meaning. They were confused about expectations. They were confused about interpreting world events. Have you ever been there? Confused on these different things? They couldn't handle the truth. They couldn't handle the truth any more than a baby can handle an iPhone. A baby can handle an iPhone. You hand it to them. It's going to slurp on. It's waterproof now if you have a new one, so you're okay with that. They can touch it, but they can't really handle it. Here's the good news. God grows us up. Remember when he brings children to them? That being childlike is not the same as being childish. We are to become children which is different from remaining childish. Church, be infants in evil, but be all grown up in knowledge of the times and knowledge of God. 
Here's the second thing. They couldn't handle the unseen nature of the truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom he came preaching at their core are spiritual in nature. This is why uh, we are instructed to keep focusing on unseen spiritual things because spiritual things last forever. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, on things that are not not on things that are on the earth. 2 Corinthians 4.17, For the light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things, as we, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Stare at the things that are unseen, is what the Scriptures say. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Everything about Jesus and the cross point to this deeper truth. While unseen is the main thing, unseen isn't the only thing. The seen, I mean the unseen, affects and invades the seen. This is what the incarnation is all about. This is what Christmas is all about. God took on flesh. God took on a body. The eternal spiritual nature of Jesus is now seen and walks the earth and can be talked to and responded to. And when you cut him, he bleeds. The unseen affects and invades the seen. To understand Jesus only in the physical is to miss the main thing. Yet, to look at just the unseen spiritual nature, nature and somehow re- disregard that he physically came, physically bodily died, physically bodily rose again, is to miss it all as well. So it is with the gospel. The gospel is an eternal truth with everlasting implications. And receiving the gospel into your life invades the physical. It transforms everything about the way that we live in all the ways that are seen. So to handle the truth takes help. To handle the truth takes growing up. We're born again. We're spiritually born as babies with an iPhone. We don't have a clue what this thing's about. God's going to grow us and open our, our minds to it. We must not think only spiritual or only physical realities, whether we're watching the news and interpreting the times or whether we're reading the scriptures and pondering how to live. Truth invades and informs both. I'm going to show you a scripture that some of you have already, it's already been brought to mind because of the words that I'm using. God has given us truth to handle and we respond in kind by handling it well. Some of you are already thinking about 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, although this is an older pastor charging it to a younger pastor, pastors are to live lives that sheep that other congregants are to emulate. So this is for every Christian. Here's a couple of ideas. One is the idea that there must be a wrong way to do this. There is a right way and a wrong way to handle truth. It also means that you're going to get it wrong. Do you see those words, do your best? Do your best means you aren't perfect at it. Lost in our land right now is the fine art of civil discourse. Dialogue is being replaced with monologue. Hasn't happened in the last two weeks, friends. This has been going on for a long time. What if we begin to bring back from a perspective of humility, from a heart of humility, these kinds of phrases? You know, from my perspective, 
and then we share. These are things we're not completely convinced yet. We, we think we have the right answer. And then ask with the intent to understand from someone else. Here's another phrase. You know, it might be that dot, dot, dot. Maybe it's because dot, dot, dot. I may be wrong, but dot, dot, dot. This invites conversation. This invites dialogue. This invites back and forth. There are plenty of absolutes right now being slung around, and unless it is God's plain truth, I would submit to you that out of your own mouth or the mouth of others, that may be born of pride and completely unhelpful. I close by inviting you to use your holy imagination to ponder a question. And the question is this, why does Jesus give them this truth if they can't handle it? It says they understood none of these things. It was lost on them. Here's the short answer. Ready? I don't know. Go ask Jesus. I could just close in prayer, but let me say a few words. I don't really know the answer. Jesus knows the answer to that. But I think it's healthy to ponder this. And as I pondered this question, it stirred up Christ-exalting praise from my own heart and mind. Here's a couple thoughts. Though they fumbled it at first, these disciples... Post-ascension, so after he is raised from the dead, by many convincing proofs, he, he shows himself to the disciples. Uh, post, then he goes up. Post-ascension, it utterly transforms every one of these disciples. They picked up the gospel truth that they had fumbled, and metaphorically, they run for the touchdown, and they score big. Secondly is this. The gospel truth that he gives on this occasion to a small group who completely lacked understanding reverberates through the centuries to you and to me. With the help of history and hindsight, what a gift to hear the Savior out of his own mouth claim his rightful central place in the story. That it's all about him. Our humble, selfless, servant king. When I sat here and thought about Jesus handing this to these disciples, I, I was just staggered. I, it just caused pause for, God, you are so good. You are wise beyond anything we could possibly imagine. Just as a parent might give a gift of a precious heirloom to a young child who completely misses the significance in the present, Jesus is letting his few close friends in on the real story going on. It's a sneak peek on a cosmic scale. How many millions through the ages would have longed to be one of those guys sitting in that small group discussion with Jesus in that moment saying ahead of time, the very thing that would alter the course of human history. Jesus does and commands things right now in our present that will only make complete sense once we are looking back on it. Here's the question, church. Do you trust him? Will you follow his words that lead to life? Let's pray. God, today, right now, is a test. It's always a test. It's a test in good times and joyful celebrations. It is a test in uncertain worldwide trauma times. I pray for myself. I pray for my family. I pray for my church family. I pray for Christians in this community and the world that we as a community of faith would hold on, not in blind faith, 
but reasonable, rational, firm faith to the very end. God, as we hold on to you, we celebrate and set our minds on the truth that you are holding on to us. You are an incredible story writer. We are convinced that what you have said about the end is true. That is where our hope is. That is what we walk in. That is the peace and comfort and instruction we receive this morning. In the strong risen name of the one who predicted ahead of time that he would die and rise again for the sins of all mankind. Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.